Hey everybody, welcome back to the Phil Crown Survival Podcast. I'm your host, George, and we are sponsored. Our first sponsor up is Killcliffe. You can find them at killcliffe.com. Uh, they are a clean energy drink. So they have about, they have three varieties. Check them out. They have the Ignite, the Recover, and the Endure. And they, ha- they have one more, which is the uh, Recover CBD. But, uh, you know, the Ignite, it has 150 milligrams of clean caffeine. So if you need that extra boost before a workout or just to get you going through the day, check out the Ignites. They come in a variety of flavors. Um, my favorites are the Kill Cliff Recovers. You can drink those anytime. I, I, I probably drink about three of those a day. Um, I should cut back, but they're so good. They also have the Kill Cliff CBD Recover drinks. Uh, they have 25 milligrams of CBD, and they have three flavors. They have the goat, which is the grapey, grapiest of all time. I'm drinking one right now. They have the uh, orange kush, and then they have the mango tango. So check them out at killcliff.com. You know, Killcliff also, since 2015, has been uh, part of the Navy SEAL Foundation. You know, the Navy SEAL Foundation, is they give back to the communities of veterans, um, their families, and things like that. So anytime that we can support a veteran-owned company, or a veteran uh, company, oh, yeah, veteran-owned company, because Killcliff was founded by Navy SEAL. So anytime we can support that, we're always about that. So check them out at killcliff.com. We also have a coupon code, which is SURVIVAL10. You save 10% on your entire order. So check them out. Next up is KC Highlights. You can find them at kchighlights.com. And basically they are our supplier of all lights that we need. Anything from our off-road driving uh, to fog lights, to rock lights, to overlanding, to camping. They have every light to fit your need. I mean, I can just go over some of the models they have. They have the Pro 6, the Gravity, the Flex, the Slim Light, the Cyclone, the Carbon Pod, the Pro Sport, the Daylight, or the Apollo. I can go on and on. They have every light that you need for any occasion, whatever you're doing. If you can mount it, you can put a KC Highlight light on it. So check them out at kchighlights.com. And our coupon code for them is Fieldcraft. And you save 10% off your entire order. And uh, that's a pretty nice little uh, discount when you're buying these lights. Uh, yeah, so check them out. Everything you need for lights, kchighlights.com. Whether you're driving a Jeep, a Ford, a Toyota, whatever it is you're driving, they can hook you up with lights you need. So check them out at kchighlights.com and uh, use uh, coupon code FIELDCRAFT to save 10%. Next up, we have Triarch Systems. Uh, Triarchs, we've been with Triarch for probably almost close to a year now. They've, uh, they're a great company. They have everything from rifles, Glocks, 1911s, Tri-11s. Uh, you know, you can either get them pre-built or you can get them custom built however you want them. Just go, uh, check them out at triarchsystems.com and you go on their site. They have everything you need to either buy it, build it and make it your own. These are the type of firearms that you buy once. And that's it. They're not going to break. They're not going to stop. They're going to keep going as long as you take care of them. And they can be passed down to, for generations. So check them out. Also, if you're on their site and if you're looking for anything from suppressors, optics, any gear, knives, things like that, they have it on their site as well. And then they have different uh, variety of services as well. They have Cerakote services. They do laser engraving. And they also have training. So check them out. TriarchSystems.com. Uh, you know, anything you need for a, a great Glock, a great rifle, a great Tri-11, they have it. It's very nice stuff. Trust me, we have them in our arsenal here, and 
what can I say? When I shoot it, it just feels right when you shoot these weapons. So check them out at triarchsystems.com and use code FIELDCRAFT to save 5% on your entire build or order. Now, our next up is Uncana. You can find them at uncana.com. Uh, Uncana is a veteran-owned CBD business. They have everything from full-spectrum uh, CBD to uh, 0% THC-free THC uh, CBD products. So what I have here in front of me right now, I have the menthol CBD cream, which is THC-free, and I have the CBD muscle and joint CBD capsules, 25 milligrams of CBD in them. Uh, you know, you take them for just, uh, you know, if you have any, any inflammation, aches and pains, take the CBD pills and hopefully it will reduce your, you know, inflammation, aches and pains anywhere you're in, in your body. Also the menthol CBD cream, uh, I've been using it on my back, my neck, anywhere that I have a ache and pain, rub that in and it, it actually relieves the pain. I was pretty surprised when this, when I started getting the uncanny stuff in and I've been using it faithfully and I'll tell you what, it, it actually works. It, 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 it relaxes and it's, I have less pain now than my neck and my back, all that stuff. So check them out, uncanna.com, use code FEELCRAFT20, save 20% off your entire order and uh, go natural. Today's guest, we had Special Agent Bill Bodner. Special agent Bill, Bo oh, special agent in charge, Bill Bonner. He works out of the Los Angeles Field Division. Uh, he oversees 14 offices, uh, offices in Nevada, Hawaii, Guam, Saipan, and all over Southern California. Um, uh, uh, Bill has been in the DEA for since 1992. Uh, his story is, is is great. He has a very good outlook on kind of the how the his time in the DEA and how he sees everything working within within that uh, within the DEA and working with other agencies as well. So check him out. It's a great podcast. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Phil Cross Survival Podcast. I'm your host George, and today we have a special guest. We have Special Agent in Charge Bill Bodner. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing well, man. How about you? Great. So. Uh, just a great morning having you here and going to get in some good, good stuff. So before we get started though, let's talk about like, you know, where you're from, sure. grew up, kind of your backstory, how you kind of came to, yeah. you know, law enforcement side of the house. I was uh, born in Everett, Massachusetts and uh, spent some time growing up in Massachusetts, moved down to New Jersey probably when, I don't know, I was about six years old or so. My dad took a job down there and uh, that's where I spent all my high school time, uh, a high school student of the 80s and a college student of the 80s. I went to college at uh, the University of Delaware, and my senior year there, they brought companies down to, to, uh, to interview mm -hmm. guys on campus, you know, like a placement type of thing. So I went to a couple of the interviews, and I remember one in particular, um, the last one actually that I went on, uh, I was a business major, like finance type mm -hmm. thing. Um, they talked about uh, what they did, and it was a good interview, going well. And they said, hey, can you picture yourself doing this, you know, for the rest of your life? And I thought about it, and I'm like, no, I, I really can't. And I think that, that shocked the guy, and he said, well, thanks for being honest. And I kind of left that interview thinking, like, what am I going to do with my life, you know? It has to be something more meaningful than to me, you know, not to say that, uh, you know, not, not speaking bad about any career, actually. But for me, it had to be something that would have a little more of a public impact and, and something for the greater good, you know, at least the way I was looking at it then. So 
when you got like when you were thinking about that, you obviously you probably you graduated and moved on. Kind of what was your first? What, what was your next step? Where did you yeah. go? Like what did you want to do? I graduated and probably within like a couple of weeks, I applied to DEA because uh, it, you know it just looked like an exciting job. To be honest, it looked mm-hmm. like something that would be fun. Um, back then. Uh, drugs were kind of at the forefront of the news, and it was something where I felt like I could definitely have an impact on uh, on the community and do something good, right? Mm-hmm. So I applied to DEA right away. I was psyched, and within like a couple of weeks, I got a letter back saying, you not qualified. Like, you've done nothing in life. You graduated <laughs> college, you know? Oh. Go do something and come yeah. back and see us. So, uh, you know, that was an eye-opener, but uh, yeah, I was persistent, right? So I kind of called up a recruiter, and... and uh, it was lucky for me that there was a recruiter who was actually took the job serious and said, hey, here's what we're looking for, X, Y, and Z. You know, if you're military, no, I wasn't military. Uh, you can maybe go a local law enforcement career or something like that and then look to join DEA later. Or we're also looking for uh, accountants. And I thought, man, I just got out of college. You know, I know mm-hmm. how to study for a test right now. Let me go back to school and, uh, and get a master's degree in accounting. And really, with no desire of ever being an accountant, right. it's just something that I was going to do to get, get your foot in the door. Yeah, and it worked. Nice. It worked, right? So to fast forward, you know, I get to the DEA Academy in uh, January of 92. And, you know, again, basically a college kid, right? Mm-hmm. I really haven't done much in life besides school at that point. And who's, uh, who's in the class with me? A Navy SEAL. Um, a guy who played football for the Broncos for 10 years, uh, a recon Marine. And I'm looking around like, man, was this the right decision that I made? Like, I don't, you know, it looked good on TV, but the reality might be a little different here, you know? So when you, when you go to the recruiter, when you, and you get into DA, like, is there certain job fields that you want in for, or is it everyone's just like an agent? No, there's three, we have three core series jobs, right? So we have an Intel component, uh, that's non-sworn and, you know, basically, um, they're kind of generating a lot of our information that we action. And then there's what we call a diversion component. And that's, that's a part of our job that people don't really know. Um, that is all the regulatory work that's done with scheduled prescription drugs, mm-hmm. right? We set quotas. We ensure that drugs are stored safely, that the supply chain is secure, um, that whole part of it. And again, that's a non-sworn uh, position. Mm-hmm. And then we have the special agent position, which is really what I wanted to do. And I even talked to the recruiter at the time and I'm like, Hey, if I went in one of these other directions, would that kind of help me down the line? And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. So, um, I ended up just kind of going that education route and, uh, and got in. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you were, so you showed up to, do they call it just, uh, like, training or yeah so it's basic agent training basic okay and at that time uh dea didn't have our own academy so we used the fbi academy on a quantico marine corps base and uh and like i said it was hey, it was an eye-opener for me because ne- never having been through an academy and mm-hmm. obviously you know i talked about some of the people um that were in the class with me w- way more qualified than i felt that i was right in fact funny story um you know, the guy who was my roommate, Keith Bishop, he's the one, he was an all pro football player for the Broncos. And, uh, you know, he would have this guy calling him, you know, on, on the phone. Sometimes I'd answer it was John. And I'm like, Hey, your buddy John called. And this happened like three or four times. He's like, Hey, do you know who that is? And I'm like, no, he's like, that's John Elwood. You're talking to. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. So, you know, um, 
it was uh, it was an eye opener. It was really good training. You know, back then it was a, probably a little more um, paramilitary mm-hmm. than it is today. We still try to kind of keep that edge a little more than uh, the other federal law enforcement entities, at least in my opinion. But uh, but it was awesome. How long uh, was the the training? I think then it was 14 weeks, 14 weeks living there. Um, Since then, it's kind of sometimes it'll be 12 and then they'll bump it up to 14, 16. It kind of depends on just who's running training and what they're focusing on. And if there's new kind of uh, new training things that they have to put in the program, other things are taken out. It's just always always changing. So after your your uh, your training, where was your initial Uh, like first job assignment and like kind of like what was your job assignment? Yeah. So I thought, you know, at the time, uh, the New York, I was from New Jersey mm-hmm. at that point, you know, the New York office was a big DEA office. I thought for sure I'd be going there. And um, back then you didn't get a, you didn't get to pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said, hey, I'll take the job. And then it was like, wherever you're needed, you're going to go. So I found out like halfway through, I was going to LA and I was like, ooh, that's a, that's a big change from what oh, I expected, yeah. you know? So that was my first assignment in LA. I was working on a gang task force. Uh, I reported to LA April of 92, which coincidentally was the Rodney King riots, right? So again, that was an eye opener. So like, you jumped in yeah, first. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so when you got out there in 92 and everything was going on, like kind of what was like, like what did they have you doing or was it, yeah. was it all hands on, you know, all hands on deck for the riots or? Yeah, it was. I mean, we kind of stayed away from that as mm-hmm. much as we could and tried to continue just doing, doing our mission. Yeah. And back then it was crack cocaine and we do a lot of gang wiretaps. And, uh, you know, the great thing about DEA is when you're in, you're in, like you have a, uh, back then there wasn't even a formal, um, like train field training program. Mm-hmm. There, there, of course there is now, yeah. but back then it was kind of like you show up and you're the new guy. Hey, come on, let's go, let's go work. You know, so, so, uh, that, that luckily has changed. And, and, uh, I think the training we do post Academy is a lot better now. It gets mm-hmm. people a lot more prepared for, you know, the real oh, world. Yeah. But, uh, back then it was, like I said, a lot of, a lot of Coke cases, um, the drug cartels were really getting heavy into cocaine mm-hmm. in the 90s, and, and that was what we did. How, like, how can you, like, just to see how massive, like, the cartels are, to see how massive gang violence is and the drug running, and how do you guys wrap your head around that and try to, okay, and be like, okay, this is where we're going to start, this is what we're going to focus on, like, that, to me, it just seems overwhelming. Overwhelming. I mean, it's like the old saying, how do you eat an apple one bite at a time? Yeah. So we just keep grinding. Yeah. We just keep grinding. We focus on, uh, I think we're very good about focusing on what the threats to the community are. Mm -hmm. Where are we going to have the greatest impact? Okay, that's what we're going to do. For example, uh, you know, in in our region for for my office is the state of Nevada, uh, the seven counties that make up the greater LA area, and then Hawaii, Guam, and Saipan. It's a bit strange, Mm -hmm. you know, geographically, but that's, that's our region. And I'd say last year we spent probably just about 1% of, uh, of our time on marijuana cases. And really the focus is fentanyl, methamphetamine, and going after the things that are killing people, uh, on the streets. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. We've had that issue here as well. The fentanyl, I mean, it's like, uh, what was it? I think you, I was l- l- listening to one of your interviews mm-hmm. about spreading the, uh, the sugar packet. 
Yeah, yeah. And you said there's there's about four grams of sugar in there, and with the fentanyl, you said it was and break it up into it's a couple mil. So yeah, so really, a probably two point five milligrams milligrams of fentanyl is enough to kill you. Oh, you know, that's yeah, it's crazy. Dangerous. So that's the thing is, you know, at some point, we I think when we look at the drug cartels, right, mm -hmm. look at them more as like criminal organizations, transnational criminal organizations than just drug cartels. Right. Because that's the primary thing they're doing is drugs. But they're going to do anything that makes money. It mm -hmm. just so happens that uh, now it's drugs. Mm -hmm. And the ironic thing is, you know, I hear a lot about legalizing. Hey, if we legalize, these problems would go away. Where they're making most of their money now, or not maybe not most, but a good part of it, is counterfeit prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. And those drugs are legal in the United States, right? But they've determined, uh, they found a way that they can make counterfeit drugs using, you know, super unsafe ingredients, super unsafe dosages, mm -hmm. make them look like something that people in this country are accustomed to taking and they can just flood them over here and make an incredible amount of money, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, and, and I look at the TV and, and like during bus and everything, you see the amount that comes in and I always think to myself, how much of that amount is like gets missed or, oh, yeah. you know, it, yeah, it's yeah. just, yeah. It, this is the amount of the product that comes through. Yep. It's amazing. Yep. So, yeah. So just the history of, of the cartels a little bit and, you know, why we're in this synthetic drug thing mm -hmm. now is it started with marijuana down there, right? They made huge money for marijuana and then they got involved in kind of when I started early nineties with, uh, moving cocaine for the Colombian cartels. Mm -hmm. And first, they used to get paid for getting it, you know, across the border into the U.S. And then it became a one-for-one one deal. Like for every kilo you cross, we'll give you a kilo that you can sell on your own. Oh, okay. So quickly, that enabled them to just take over the market. Yep. You know, it really enabled them to take over the market. Um, the Colombian organizations got hit really hard in the 90s. Uh, they kind of figured, man, it might be better for us financially to just try to traffic in Europe. Mm -hmm. and stay away from the United States to some extent. And that's when we saw the Mexican cartels just grow tremendously, right? So methamphetamine, you know, what happened is uh, the cartels realized that they could kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to sell cocaine, right? You got to source it in South America. You got to pay for it to come up through the transit mm -hmm. zone. Um, all kinds of payments have to be made. It gets into Mexico. You're warehousing it and you're bringing it in the U.S. Yep. <laughs> the, the shortcut to that is just make methamphetamine, get the chemicals, and just vertical uh, integration. You know, you're just going to make a ton of it and flood it in the country. And unfortunately, right, you know, the, the drugs used in this country, it's kind of dictated by the cartels. Like, we're going to be addicted to whatever they f push across mm -hmm. the border. And that's what's happened now with meth. You know, meth and fentanyl have probably become the two big drugs because they're synthetic. They're easy to make. They're not. It's not labor intensive to make right. them. You know, very cheap. Very cheap. Supplies are. Yeah. You yeah. get them anywhere. Um, yeah. 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 So when you, so you started. Well, you graduated uh, ninety two. Uh -huh. Got it to L A. Yep. What was kind of like? Were you just thrown on the streets, or were you kind of like, how was it like set up for you when you first started? Do they do they put like the rookies out on the street, like, hey, go go for it, since you guys got the, I guess that that drive, that yeah. hunger, or whatever. I mean, 
Uh, yes. So we were definitely straight out in the street, you know, working with a, a group at that time were probably like eight or nine guys, uh, three or four were DEA agents and then some local cops, mm -hmm. sheriffs. And, uh, we started doing wiretaps, like targeting street gangs mm -hmm. and then the Mexican organizations supplying them. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, Man, it was some of the stories from then. It's just fascinating. Like what, like you'd arrest uh, a guy on a federal charge, and you know you'd be like, "Hey, man, it's thirty years," and he'd be like, "Can you smoke in federal prison?" <laughs> that that was the question, yeah, right? Wow. Because it was just a foreign, you know, federal time for a lot yeah. of those people. Even they were repeat offenders, like four and five arrests. Federal time for them was uh, a different story. Mm -hmm. And even today, with what's going on in California. Uh, it's that's the, really the only place where you're going to get impact mm -hmm. in, in your investigations is if they're prosecuted federally. Oh, wow. Really, the state charges there don't really hold. Yeah, you know, they do. Like, you'll probably get parole. Or is that, is that so, how it works? It gets like kind of. So, so what they did, what the state of California did, is um, because of budget crisis, right? They said, hey, you know, the prosecution system and the state system in California is based in the counties, and they said, counties, you can go ahead and charge people with nonviolent drug crimes. But when you do that, you have to house them in your county jail, right? You can't send them to state prison. We're not taking them because we're full with violent offenders. Mm. So what happens is uh, you might charge a guy and he'll get a sentence of, let's say, 10 years in the state system. The reality is he's going to do probably like 18 to 30 days for each year of that sentence just because of overcrowding. Wow. And they're, they're going to kind of push him out to make room for someone else. That's a more... So, it's, I don't know if you ever heard the term broken windows policing. No, it's, I've heard of you it. Know, it's kind of like that which you accept or tolerate becomes the norm. So mm. it's kind of led in California, in my opinion, by the lax attitude on some of these drug crimes, it's led towards a, a bunch of additional property crimes, cars being broken oh, yeah. into, burglaries, and a bunch of other stuff. You know? and, they're, and they're not getting charged. From what I heard in San Francisco, they don't, they're not even charged. Oh, my God. The, the car break-ins up there are just unreal. Like you said here, you brought in everything yeah, yeah, from your I truck. Don't, I don't leave anything in my car <laughs> anywhere. If it's a pair of socks, it'll be stolen. Wow. Yeah. So how do they, like, obviously you're from New Jersey, you yeah. said. You get your first assignment to L.A., they put you on the street. How, I mean, with all the training and everything like that, how do you integrate within those communities? And people know, like, they look at you yeah. or me, okay, you are you don't belong here. How do you integrate, like, like, how do they get you in there so you're, like, not burned or, like, oh, this guy's not from around here, get him out of here or something you know, like I, that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think just because it's such a big city. Mm -hmm. and, and, and really, you'd be surprised. Like, the, people will sell drugs to almost anyone. Like back then, if they thought, hmm, this guy might be a cop, they would tie their sneakers. That's oh, it. Yeah. And they just, you know, be ready to run, you know. But but uh, that's that's a good point. Like I remember like one of the first search warrants I did, there was a pair of pants. And hey, coming from at that time, kind of the uh, the baggy clothes culture, whatever, hip hop culture, it wasn't really that big on the East Coast yet. So I pick up this pair of pants and the waist is huge. And I'm like, mom, man, this, this guy's gigantic. Uh -huh. you know? And they're just, the, the cops are just laughing at me. They're like, oh, man, you don't get it, man. That's, that's, that's a style. I'm like, oh, yeah. All wow. Right. So when you were out in LA and then do they try to keep you guys like in the same communities for a while or is it, do they? No, we will, we will definitely um, work in the same communities for a while, but uh, it's not. So we'll do some undercover stuff, but really mm -hmm. kind of what 
and it started probably around that time in the 90s when I came on. We've been like a heavy intercept, communications intercept organization. Like that's our bread and butter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we probably do more wiretaps than uh, probably all the other federal agencies put together. Uh, you know, text message intercepts, BlackBerry Messenger when that was a thing, intercepts, mm -hmm. email. Um, the premise is that the, the, the drug business like relies on communication to yeah. make agreements and by targeting those communications. The, the, the thing about, I don't want to say DEA, but definitely drug law enforcement that I think is different than most other law enforcement, it kind of uh, makes it challenging in a different way is we have to figure out where a crime is going to be committed, when it's going to be committed, who's going to commit it, and we actually have to be there and watch the crime take place. Mm -hmm. And that's super, super proactive policing. And a lot of times we don't give ourselves enough credit for the capabilities that we've established to do that. But we do that every single day. Mm. You know, that's what we do. Very few cases, probably less than 5%, are more of a historical in nature where it'll just be like relying on a bunch of witness statements and, you know, grand jury right. type of thing. We do them usually targeting like kingpins, but most of the stuff we do is just 100% proactive. So you have to have, to be successful, you just really have to have a sense of urgency. And my thing is if, uh, if there's something you put off till tomorrow, that means you probably should have done it yesterday. Mm -hmm. And if you work with that mindset, you'll be successful. You'll oh, be yeah. Successful. That's yeah. Just, I had a buddy in the Army. He was a uh, Special Forces medic. He told me, he's like, you know, it, it's so easy to be lazy. It's mm -hmm. so easy to do it tomorrow or put it off. He said, but if I do it now, I get it done and I can move on to my next thing. He mm -hmm. said, it's simple. He said, the simplest thing is putting the trash down to the end of the driveway on Fridays in the morning. He said, I hate it every morning, right. but I do it the night before. So when I get up, I can go on to the next thing. So I, I get all these little tasks out of the way. So the big tasks become easier to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? It's, it's the simplest thing of the way of thinking about things, but it's, it, but for some people, it's the hardest thing to do. Right. You know, like right. picking up the, the, your underwear off the ground, putting in the hamper. I do it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like I get lazy and I just yeah. throw it around there. You well, know, who but, was the admiral that said, uh, Make your bed or... Uh, I think it was uh, McCraven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, make your bed every morning. Make your to bed make every it morning. Happen. Yeah. 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 So, so listen, when a new when a new agent comes in, we have... Uh, there was a, a class that graduated from our academy last Friday, and we have 10 coming to our office, which is a lot, right? Oh, wow. A lot. Uh, four veterans, I think three Marines and one Army. And the thing I tell them is like, You'll be successful if you have a work ethic mm -hmm. and uh, and a sense of urgency. Right. It doesn't so much matter like what you did in the past, unless what you did in the past has developed those traits in you. Right. Then it matters. Yeah. You know. Then it matters. But I, I, you know, I tell stories about there was a woman who was a hairdresser who was phenomenal agent, like phenomenal, just because she had that sense of urgency mm -hmm. and would not like just work nonstop. And uh, another guy who used to, uh, I don't know what you call him, cart, shopping cart roper at Target. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. He ended up working in Colombia, Mexico. Um, oh, yeah. He's back in our office now, and he's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. right? So it really doesn't matter so much what you did in the past, but hopefully... It's, like, it's, it's your, it, your potential. That's Everyone it. Everyone has you know, potential. That's it. If you develop the, the discipline and... Um, and like I said, sense of urgency, man. That'll, yeah. that'll make you successful. Yeah, that's like for me. Like I, I did twenty years in the army, retired, uh, hooked up with Mike. I know know Mike for some years now, but he's like, hey, come work for me. 
And I'm not a, I don't, I don't know what to do with a business, but I have 20 years of military experience. Like I understand what it means to like get something done. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to have a business degree in there order to go. get a phone call done to get uh, something yep. ordered or, or get a partnership going. Yep. I, I look at it, a lot of people, just a little bit of people, like interpersonal <clears throat> skills goes so long, yep. goes so far. Like please and thank you. I, I use my manners. Yes, sir. No, sir. And people look at you like, oh, okay. Right. I, I'm not saying I get what I want, but it's easier for me to navigate through through life and just being nice. For sure. You know, it's just, uh, so, yeah. Because I think a lot of, like, what you do in law enforcement is you're talking to people. Oh, yeah. That's all you're doing. You're interacting with people. There's no, you're not interacting with an alien. You're not interacting with some of them probably are aliens from not, not from this world, but you're acting with people. Everyone has the, you know, everybody has their wants, their needs, the stuff that they like to do, like all that stuff. And, yep. you know, when you're out there on the streets, it's like you have to keep taking the mind that the human factors. Yep. And I think a lot of people just miss that. I'm not saying a lot of people miss it, but. It's also a bit of a lost art communication, yeah. right? Because we've become so, um, you know, text-based oh, or, yeah. you know, who even talks on the phone anymore? Oh, you know, yeah. When I started, there was no uh, cell phones. You didn't, we didn't have oh, cell yeah. phones. You know, we had pagers and yep. you have to find a pay phone. But, but uh the fact that people have lost that skill, um, you know, we'll see someone that has that skill and it's like, okay, that's the person you want talking to a mm -hmm. defendant or a suspect and, you know, things usually go our way then. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause you get, you get a lot of information from somebody from just treating them nice. That's it. Offer them a drink. Yep. I mean, those simple things would, are opening, they open doors. Yep. So uh, just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. But I read, um, uh, in the paper recent or on the online, you, there was a big, uh, you guys had a big bust up in, uh, it was February of, uh, this year, right? I don't know. February 19th. What was it? You, uh, it was a big, uh, it was a big, was uh, fentanyl bust or something, okay. pills. Okay. And, uh, just, and I watched your interview and just the way you like described like how much you guys found and like just the, like we talked about earlier, the amount of fentanyl it takes just to kill somebody. Right. It's just. And, and that's the thing. Like we try to get the message out for people not to take those pills, right? And I mean, they you know, still hey, do. But, but, you know, hey, addiction is a disease. Yeah, that's know? true. So you, you have to be cognizant of that and, and accept that for what it is. But like I said earlier, these pills are made in like the filthiest clandestine labs yeah, you yeah. can imagine, you know? There was a story um, about a lab where they make this stuff in Mexico and basically two kids in there just with like bandanas on, yeah. like handling this stuff. And they were asked, like, you, you know, you do this, you know, this goes to the United States or, you know, it kills people. And they're like, that's not my problem. Yeah, they just want the money. They just want the money. Yeah, they need a job. And so. then the people, the drug users on this side, the people buying the drugs on the street, you talk to them and you're like, you realize this money goes back to Mexico and it buys guns and fuels corruption and, you know, death of government officials. We've seen that mm -hmm. recently, right? And all that. And they're like, yeah, but that's not my problem, man. You know, yeah, it's like both fix. sides have to understand yeah. that it's that it's our problem. You know, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, it, <laughs> you're right. It's it affects everyone else except for the the those two people. Yeah, because they could care less. They could about care it. less. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. So what what is kind of like with everything going on in the you know in the states? Yeah. Kind of like has a DEA. Have you guys kind of like, okay, we need to change some things or is it kind of still, you know, we're, we're still doing our mission? Yeah, we're still doing our mission. And well, with respect to like COVID, it's, it's changed trafficking a little bit. 
Um, the border is tight, mm -hmm. so the price, like like for methamphetamine, for example, uh, last year, let's say November, you could buy a pound wholesale for a thousand bucks, eleven hundred bucks. Now we're seeing it four thousand dollars, you oh, know, wow. thirty five hundred, four thousand um, dollars. The biggest change with COVID is just the money laundering system. So, uh, you know, t so it used to be. You know, the Colombian organizations always use these kind of more complex money laundering mm -hmm. schemes. Mexican organizations, it was easier to just put the U.S. dollars in the trunk of a car, drive south, and you're good, mm -hmm. right, cross the border. So in 2010, the finance ministry in Mexico changed the laws quite a bit and made it real difficult to get U.S. dollars in the banking system down there. So the uh, Mexican cartels started getting involved in this black market peso exchange, it's called, or trade-based money mm -hmm. laundering. But that relies on commerce. In, in L.A., there's a wholesale district where it's like all um, fashion businesses, but like pretty inexpensive clothing. Right. right? Yep. That's very liquid, easy to sell. Mm -hmm. You know, like everyone needs underwear. Yep. So you can sell it quick. It's cheap. There's a big market for it. So the drug money would generally go into those businesses. I'll simplify it a little bit. Right. But the mm -hmm. drug money goes into those businesses in L.A. The products go to Mexico. They're sold. And then the pesos from the sale go to the trafficking organizations. It's basically how it works. With those businesses shut down, the money just started piling up in mm -hmm. LA. So probably since March 1st, we've probably seized like close to 25 million in cash. And last year, the same time period, you know, the number was probably closer to 10. And it's all non-counterfeit, legal? Oh, no, no, yeah, all legal, legal all tender legal. from all over the United States. You know, LA has been one of the centers for um, drug money just because of that whole wholesale district, right. you know? So when you guys see that amount of money, I mean, I know there's like, you know, all the processes you got to mm -hmm. go, but in the end, how do you, how does that money get distributed back? I mean, obviously, I don't know if it gets back into like the law enforcement for funding or where does that money go? So, yeah, so it goes to a Department of Justice fund, right? And then it's shared with local law enforcement, state and local law enforcement, and just based on their participation in specific investigations. Mm -hmm. And usually it's kind of broken down by man hours or... Let's say one department supplied a helicopter, so maybe that was like an additional special. Oh, okay. So, so you know, yeah. if you put just ten hours for a pilot, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if it's a helicopter mm -hmm. involved, you know, so, so that's the way it's shared, and it goes back to to keep things going, to keep nice. law enforcement going, supplement the budgets a little. Oh, bit. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, so and then, while you guys are working with, you know, obviously you guys do a lot of joint operations. Do you find like? Is it harder to work jointly? Is it easier? Like, what kind of, what is your, I mean, I'm, you've had over 30 years of experience. Like, how, how, yeah. how do you see that joint environment? Man, it's, it's a blessing in L.A. I mean, it's a blessing in L.A. We're a pretty young workforce mm -hmm. in the L.A. office uh, simply because it's, um, it's a high cost of living area. So a young agent will come there, you know, 25 years old like I was. Mm -hmm. And if he wants to start a family, it's going to be expensive, right? Yeah. So eventually, after maybe five years, they're going to want to go overseas to an assignment or go to a, a, another place in the U.S. where it's less expensive. Um, that's good, right? Mm -hmm. It keeps turnover in an office, but at the same time, people don't really learn that much about the city and what's right. going on in the city. So that's where we rely on the locals. You know, you can work with a narcotics detective who's been um, 25 years in the narcotics division mm -hmm. at LAPD. They're going to know where the problems are in the city. And then we can kind of team up with him and bring the federal resources oh, yeah. to address the problems that they point out. So that's a lot of what we do. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of, 
it's definitely a sense of pride, right? When you go uh, to talk about, or to speak with an LAPD commander and he says, hey, we have this problem area where we've had a bunch of citizen complaints. The people in this community are like fed up with uh, street drug sales in this area. Mm -hmm. And we can go down there and bring the resources and do some federal prosecutions and really have an impact. You know, we call it quality of life cases. Mm -hmm. It's changing the quality of life for people in that community. And uh, there's what I always tell people is there's two sides to what we do, right? We do these international cases where we're indicting kingpins like Chapo and and uh, and Mencho. Mm -hmm. But we have to also remember that we have an obligation to the people in the community, right? They probably don't care too much. Uh, some people, right? They yeah. don't care too much what Chapo's doing in Mexico. They're looking out the window and they want to know why they've called the the local police 15 times yeah. and the same guy is still dealing drugs in the corner. Yep. So we make it a point to address those issues and try to kind of pick up, uh, pick up some of the slack in the community where the local law enforcement, um, for whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. Just or maybe it's the judicial system in the state just hasn't been able to create the impact that the people expect. Yeah, and as I look at that too, mm -hmm. like in communities and stuff like that, stop. I'm not a political guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not here with my political flag. But it's like, why? Like, stop blaming the president for a problem that's in your downtown, mm -hmm. on your, you know, small town America or wherever it is. It, like, like you said, it starts with your local government, your yeah. local people, your local community. Like, it's your place. Yep. Like, get up, pick the trash up, go do something. Right. Like, get involved. And it's just, you can explain it, like, perfectly. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's like with, like, I've lived in Prescott for, like, two years now. And, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because when we got here, I didn't know anybody. We just brand new. We're, we were out at the air park in a warehouse yeah. starting business. But... We were able to get in because the uh, Prescott's a very, it's like a, a veteran community kind mm -hmm. of. We I think twenty percent of veterans live in the community, but um, we got in with one of the local guys here. He introduced to the mayor. From there, we went and talked to the mayor of Prescott Valley. So it's like everything we did, we were community based. Like we do like little, uh, we do a toy run, a toy uh, drive every Christmas for the community. We work closely with law enforcement here, but it's like, and it's so easy to get involved. Like yep. when people complain about they're not doing this, they're not doing that. It's like, you live in this community. You pay your taxes here. You shop here. You know people here. Why don't you go downtown or go to the city hall and get involved? Yep. It's not, it's raise your hand or get some information. And no one's not asking you to have a full-time job like doing, like volunteering. Yep. But just apply yourself a little bit. Make a difference in your community. Get the community involved, like you said. And it just, it, it's so simple to say, but... It, it's you gotta yeah. get off your ass and Man, do it. It's interesting to hear you say that, right? Because a couple of years ago we started something called the 360 program, and it was taking a more holistic approach to the drug problem. DEA is unique in that. Um, I, I guess the way I describe it is if uh, if you went to a press conference, right? For it was an LAPD press conference, and they were talking about solving a serial murder where a guy had killed 11 people over three years. No one at that, no reporter at that press conference would ask a question and say, you know, isn't it true that, yes, you've arrested this so-called serial killer, but that's not really going to impact the number of murders in the city, is it? You never hear that question. Mm -hmm. But that's probably an accurate statement. Yeah. You never hear anybody ask, um, I don't know, like, uh, with us, it's just different. Like, when, when we, like, we recently indicted Ruben Oseguera Cervantes for fentanyl trafficking. Big mm -hmm. kingpin, El Mencho. It was a superseding indictment. We have a press conference, 
And the first question is, isn't although yeah you've indicted this kingpin, but won't there be someone else there? To, mm -hmm. say, but but we can only do them one at a time. Oh, yeah, you, know, exactly. you know what I mean. So so in order to kind of take a more holistic approach, we started this 360 program. We said, okay, we're also going to get in the community and we're going to team up with uh, treatment centers. Mm -hmm. So DEAT, we we team up with Dr. Drew. Of, of all people, you know, we yeah. have a great relationship with Dr. Drew, and he actually believes in many of the same things that we do about uh, addiction and homelessness in LA mm -hmm. and some of the issues that that drugs have caused. We did a program last year where we had about a thousand school children uh, at the Dolby Center in LA, and Dr. Drew was there. Um, you know, athletes were there, people that have had drug problems, and mm -hmm. our message is is different than. The Reagan years, right? Um, yeah. Just just say no to drugs might have worked for me. That's not going to work today. Yeah, exactly. We so, had dare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the message now is is our message is find something you're passionate about, mm -hmm. right? Don't let drugs distract you from that passion, and don't let drugs be your passion. And there's a skateboarder named named Brandon Novak, and it, he tells a riveting story, man. Uh, yeah, he was on. Um, he was part of the Johnny Knoxville, yep, exactly, Van Margera. Exactly. Dude, I watched. Like I used to growing up, like on the MTV time yeah. when they actually had like good programming. I mean, it wasn't good programming, but just yeah. mindless TV. Watching those shows, and you see that guy. Oh, you see downhill. It was like wow. So he tells the most. I mean, he fits this. Me he fits this message that I'm speaking about so perfectly. Because he'll speak to the kids, and he'll say, "Gator, I was a Gatorade sponsored athlete. It, I don't know, 15. I don't remember mm -hmm. what it was." I was I met Michael Jordan touring with Tony Hawk, skateboarding all over the world, and then I kind of got distracted a little bit. I missed a couple. I missed a flight, or I missed a uh, missed a uh, a promotional engagement. Yeah. Right, I didn't show up, but it was cool. I got back on track. You know, so mm -hmm. so there you see step two. Right, he's being distracted from his passion, and then how he didn't even care about skateboarding. Man, oh, he yeah. just said, "I don't give a shit about skateboarding anymore." It's just all about the drugs. Where am I going to get drugs? How am I going to get drugs? Yeah, he was doing stuff crazy on camera, stuff, right? right? Embarrassing. What finally, and he went through rehab a bunch of times, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not going to work the first time most times, you know, but you have to, what do you oh, do? Yeah. You have to keep trying. And the story he tells is like something to the effect that, you know, he was basically naked on the street. And that's when he realized like, hey, I got to do something to, to address this, you know? But but anyway, that's the kind of programs that we're yeah. trying to get involved with now to to help educate people, and you'd be surprised at the pushback we get from some schools, and they say, hey, if we have the DEA come in our school, the parents will think there's a drug problem, and my thing is, there's drugs in your school. Yeah, right? yeah. There's drugs in the school. You know, don't if you go on with that attitude, you're really kind of you're missing, have a you're missing an opportunity to, to, to save people. You yeah. know, you can't do that. So it's, it's so funny to me. Like you're going there on your guys's own time mm -hmm. for a program that you were going to do for the community mm -hmm. and that you get denied. Like, yeah. It blows my mind how that, how people think these days yep. about, I'm just trying to help. Well, no, your, your help is going to make it seem like there's, a problem and then that's it. It's drugs exactly. and we're a bad school and then people are going to start leaving and it's like, come on, no, we're here to like yeah. help you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I understand that kids are going to use drugs. It's just don't let them interfere with, have something in life that you love doing. Exactly. Right? I told, yeah, I have two daughters, six mm -hmm. and 12 and my 12 year is about to be, she'll be 13 on Friday. And, uh, it, 
it, I see them growing up and I'm just like, wow, it's so different from when I was growing up. There's so much more pressures on, on kids these mm -hmm. days with social media and the bullying and all that stuff. But I told my daughter, I was like, listen, you guys need to find something that you like yep. and stick with it or, or just uh, branch out of it, whatever yep. you want to do. I said, you guys got to pick something. I said, by the end of this summer, by the, end of, by the time you start school, you're going to pick something and you're going to do it for the year. And then at the end of the year, when you're done, if you want to do it, good. If not, I don't want to do it. But guess what? You're picking something else. <laughs> right, move on. <laughs> move right. on to the next thing. So, right. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people, they don't have a hobby, a passion, yeah. a job. So when you're bored, what do you do? Oh, let me pick up this. Let me pick this crack pot. You know, I mean, yeah, it's no, just no. like. Hey, so during uh, COVID, I think alcohol sales were up like 52%. Mm -hmm. In Colorado, they had record uh, marijuana sales at, at the dispensaries oh, yeah. and whatnot. People, you know, people are gonna, you know, like it's like in the army. If you don't give nothing, if you don't give Joe nothing to do, they're, <laughs> gonna, fi they're gonna find something <laughs> to do, it. and it's not gonna be what you want them to That's do. That's it. So, yeah. so how do you like? I've been watching the news up yeah. in Portland, and there's a big thing about federal agents, mm -hmm. and they're snatching people up. They're, I, I get it. They're not snatching people up. They're, yeah. they're breaking the law. They're there for a reason. Like, can we? Can you expound on like what they're kind of? I know. You, if they're, I don't know if they're DA, FBI, yeah. or whatever, but like, kind of, what is their role right now? So, so here, here, I can speak to what we did here in L, not here in LA, what we did in LA mm -hmm. during during the unrest, right? And it's it's somewhat different than what the media might have suggested, right? As I said a little while ago, man, you know, hey, I'm a homer, right? But I think that our people are the best proactive law enforcement people in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we put our people on the streets, not targeting protesters, not even near protesters, but in areas where uh, there were businesses we felt might be targeted, a lot of mm -hmm. pharmacies, things like that. Oh, yeah. There, there was one situation where we had guys out there for literally 20 minutes, five people show up, uh, hit a check cashing place, you know, five smash windows, go inside, mm -hmm. come out, and we, we arrest all of them. So that's really what we were doing, right? We were doing proactive um, anti-crime mm -hmm. police work with the locals and you know, trying to just kind of reduce the load on them, so that, so they could handle the stuff that they need to do with the uh, with the protests oh, and, and nice. that kind of thing. Yeah, because like you don't, they don't cover that. No, you, know, you don't see that. All no. you see is like the violent, like oh my god, they're just snatching people off the street for no reason. No one's telling them why they're arrested. It's like people know why they're getting yeah, arrested. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's definitely that's not true. pretend. Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> so how do you got like from like from now, like because you got the elections coming up, how does that change? Kind of, is that change anything within the department, or it doesn't really? No, I, I mean, you know, we're going to keep doing what we do. Um, sometimes, depending on the administration, the focus will change a little bit. We just roll with it. Mm -hmm. You know, we just roll with it. We we, we don't get caught up in it. Um, you know, it's just again one bite of the apple. Yeah. You know, like we know what the problems in the community are, and, right. and that's what we're trying to address. Now, and then you say you have what. 14 offices? So, so we have, yeah, so we have 14 offices in the in LA your region. Division, in our oh, region. Okay. And that's anywhere from Saipan, you know, Reno, mm -hmm. um, a bunch in LA. Uh, overall, we have 240 offices in the US, and then I think another 90 overseas. Nice. Yeah, so we have a pretty big yeah. footprint around the world, and, uh, and, you know, a big base of informants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we really have kind of our finger on the pulse on a lot of things going on around the world. So like, let's say you do a big bust, you, and you, you get a guy, and mm -hmm. he's like, okay, you know, how, like, 
what are his options on, you know, obviously he's arrested and he's going to go to trial and mm-hmm. jail and court. But how does that guy, if he wants to help you guys out, like how does that work for an informant? Yeah. Like, so a couple different ways. I mean, one way is if there was something that we wanted to put him back on the street to mm-hmm. do, that's what we would do, right? A prosecutor has to sign off on it, but he would go back on the street and, you know, we would control him in mm-hmm. essence, right? And uh, the deal would be he's going to plead guilty at some point to a charge, and we can't promise him what his sentence is going right. to be, but we're going to let the judge know, hey, this guy provided significant assistance. Here's specifically what he did, and his uh, sentence would get reduced. That's how it would work generally, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's a big part of our business is what we do with informants and you know them introducing undercovers, uh, informants getting us up on communication instruments and identifying communication instruments that traffickers are using. Mm-hmm. A lot of it comes from just human sources that we have out there working. Yeah, because I, I, like I said I, and before, I, 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 the DEA, like all the undercover, like ATF, it's so fascinating. Just mm-hmm. just get, get in the mind of like that agent, like, okay, I'm going to go undercover now and I have to be, you know, in this environment. I really, you know, sometimes I might not have nobody watching my back or I might have to do something that I don't want to do. There was a book I read. It was called uh, Under and Alone. Mm-hmm. It was an ATF agent named... Uh, Billy St. John. I don't know if he went undercover in the Mo- the moguls, Mo- mongrels, Mo- mongrels. Yeah, 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 motorcycle club, and just reading his stories and everything. I, and I, you know, I don't know how much he could have like told it with you know opsec and all that stuff. But some of his stories were like, yeah, how did you get through that? Like, you know, hey, ATF's known for doing those long term undercover things. Yeah, we don't. We we do you guys do that? I mean, of? we do it in kind of a, a, maybe a certain part of our work. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in like undercover money laundering stuff, we'll do it. But it's but it's not going to be a situation where you're out living with crooks. Yeah. Um. You know where you're operating in like foreign countries or anything like that. We just don't do that anymore. It's mm-hmm. too dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's just too dangerous. But uh, but it is. Um. Hey, they 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 do some serious long term right. stuff. Yeah. So and then, as, I mean, obviously you probably watch the news and you see everything going on, and you kind of see we talk about all the you're a racist thing come out like everyone's mm-hmm. everyone's a racist mm-hmm. you're you, you don't agree with somebody you're a racist i i say something that doesn't agree with somebody you're a racist like wh- how do you see now like the future of like law enforcement dea of you know officers getting uh hired mm-hmm. different backgrounds how, yeah so so especially with the defund the police thing right mm-hmm. you know when people here's what i recommend people do um because I did it. Mm-hmm. Ask two questions of your community. Uh, if you're, if you're, if people are calling for the defunding of the police in your community, ask two questions. First is who is using police services in the community? Who are the victims of crime? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just, I'll just use L.A. as an example because that's where I live, right? The city of L.A. Um, if you look at the past year, seventy-five percent of the victims of forcible rape were uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. 85% of the people uh, who were victimized by aggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon, were people of color. If you defund the police on some level, there's going to be a reduction in services. Mm-hmm. That's just the fact, right? So are you not, and this is a question, right? Are you not going to uh, uh, impact, maybe even disproportionately, that segment of the population? Like, how does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, how does that make sense that that's what, the community wants. 
Um, that's the first question I would ask, because to me, I don't want to do that, right? I, I don't want to impact that population. Um, the second thing I would suggest is look at who's policing your streets, because I think a lot of people have a misconception about who's actually doing the police work on the streets of their cities right now. And again, if you look at LAPD, and I only use them because they're very transparent, you can go mm -hmm. online and look this stuff up. The past year, <clears throat> they hired, uh, I think, about 620 police officers, right? 530 of them were other than white males. So that's more than 85% were other than white males. Those new police officers are actually the ones that are uh, at the community level mm -hmm. on the streets, doing the patrolling, interacting with the public. Uh, that's what policing looks like today. And, and LA is a great example of it. You know, they, they get kick-ass recruits and mm -hmm. very diverse kick-ass recruits, right? If you defund the police, and, I, and again, I'm not speaking for LAPD. I don't know what their plan is to eat $150 million, um, you know, cut. But I know what my organization would probably do at some point is, because it's easy to do quick while you figure out what you're going to do, is freeze hiring. So if you freeze hiring, you're stopping that diverse hiring and the rate of change in your department is actually going to slow down. You know, Th those people that you would have hired today that in three to five years would be training officers. In 10 years, they'd be in a leadership, a sergeant position, mm -hmm. uh, a lieutenant position, or in a specialized investigative unit. You're slowing that down. And that's where change in an organization comes from, in my opinion. It's driven from the inside, um, from, the, from the line level. Like, hey, I can preach about what I want to happen. But if I'm not, you know, a lot of it has to do with my effectiveness too, right? If I'm not effective as a leader or if the troops just don't buy into what I'm saying for whatever mm -hmm. reason, it's not going to happen. Um, by freezing hiring, we're really not going in the direction that we should be going in law enforcement. You know, so I think uh, those are my two fears with, with defunding, you know, hiring and, uh, and, you know, the victims, the people that are being victimized oh, yeah. by the crime. What's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. The crime's going to go up. Yeah. Help's not going to come. Right. People are going to get mad. Right. And people so, are going to like, well, why don't we have and, the, the cops? So that almost makes me wonder, and, you know, I don't want an answer for this, but, like, who's really behind that? You know, who's yeah. really, who thinks that's really a good idea to create that environment? I, I certainly don't, and, you know, that's all I got. I, I mean, you know, that's just me, I yeah. guess. You know, that's it's just, just like me. overseas when we do, you know, the, the patrolling, presence patrols, and mm -hmm. we're in an area for a while. Yeah. Maybe like when we first get in there, it's going to be hot. Mm -hmm. But then once we get our presence in there, we're in there daily doing stuff, talking to the local community, things die down. Right. But like you said, once we pull out like a platoon or yep. a company, guess what? That vacuum is open <sighs> and someone's filling that vacuum yep. because in that vacuum, there's resources, there's money, there's people that people they can use. Mm -hmm. So they're going to fill that vacuum yeah. as quick as they can. Yeah. So it... Yeah, people just need to rethink about what I they so. mean I, when I, they say defund the yeah, police. I think so. And, and listen, I understand. Um, I, I understand there's other uh, other um, places that mm -hmm. we need to put money in the community. You know, I, I don't disagree with that. I think I think we need to rethink though, taking it out of law enforcement and putting it there because mm -hmm. I don't see that benefiting the greater good. You know, it's maybe patching one hole by creating another one. Oh yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. And. And do you see it's, and do you think like it has a lot to do with like a political party, like Democrat, Republican on this stuff, or is it more the pressure of the media 
and outside people that are making these these changes. Uh, it's come to it's light. hard to say, man. It's hard to say. Like that's what I said. It's hard to say yeah. who's really who's really behind it. You know? Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you gonna do? I mean, it it feels like. And I think, I think there's just too much news going on. Mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes you're getting news all over the United States, all over the world, and. It's overload. And overload. And nothing's yeah. like, no, there's no good news. No. So you're getting constantly inundated with all these negative things. And once you get that negative things in your head, I think, you know, people are just going to be down, yeah. depressed. Man, I have to stop looking at Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just can't. Really, I can't just, everything at, is so negative. Yeah. And, um, and just the videos they show of people like, you know, uh, I, the one that really boils my blood is uh, there was, I think it was a lady and her daughter was four years old and it got jumped by like four people. And... The guy kicked the four-year-old in the head. I mean, it was bad. Right. And it's like, I can't do this. I can't watch this stuff no more. Right. And I think the last time I heard, they caught like three or four of the people, which is good. But it just, it's like, what's going on? Yep. You know? So so in your 30 years, you'll have 30 by the time? uh, 28 and a half now, so I'm getting up there. So how, like 28 years and all in the DEA. Yeah. Like, how do you... Like, that's a long time. Yeah. I mean, you've seen, you've probably done it all, seen it all. Kind of how do you look at, you know, those 28, 29 years of, like, how has it changed? Yeah. Hey, the one change, you can't smoke in a government office anymore. Yeah. I say that, <laughs> I say that half jokingly, but I remember when I started, you know, there were people that would just smoke a cigar and oh, walk yeah. around the office smoking a cigar, you know. Damn, yeah. And we look at today and it's like, man, that's. I look at today like, you smoke? Like, yeah, I like, know. You no, smoke? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Exactly, like, right? So, so weird. So, yeah. Um, the, the big change, I think, has been the uh, the kind of rise to power of the Mexican cartels. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started, it was these Colombian organizations that were flooding the country with cocaine. And, uh, and the Mexicans have kind of taken over um, as the drug suppliers to this country. And the Colombians, a bit, have been kind of like pushed to Europe. Oh, you know, where, okay. Where they're they're going to go to Europe, not deal with the DEA so much. They're still... Still trafficking here, but right. nowhere near, you know, what it used to be back then. And and then the shift to synthetic drugs. Right. The so, shift to methamphetamine and fentanyl, the two big things. So did you see kind of, was it kind of like the Colombian cartels was kind of like kind of handing over the, the I don't know, the United, the U.S. supply route to the, Mex, the, the cartels? I don't think, I don't think so willingly at first, yeah. but it, it's just a situation they, they created, you know, mm-hmm. by the way they supplied the Mexicans with cocaine. The Mexicans then kind of set up the infrastructure to distribute it here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, they controlled the border crossing. So it was easy for them to just say, hmm, you know, this cocaine's a bit of a pain uh, to get involved with. Let's just kind of vertically integrate and we'll do methamphetamine and, mm-hmm. and flood the U.S. with it. So where it used to be we'd get tons of coke seizures and mm-hmm. not much meth, it's now kind of the uh, inverse. So, so it's a lot of meth Yeah, now. a lot of meth. 600 pounds this past weekend, you know, coming across the border in a truck. Damn. So, so with all yeah. that, with all that drugs coming in, with all the money coming in, like how are, the, like, I mean, I get it. Cartels are going to feud and war, but I mean, with all that stuff coming in, is it just the greed that, you know, they do well, all the cartel versus cartel violence? Is it just the greed or is it? I think it is the greed. Yeah. It's the greed. It's about control of, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what empowers them in Mexico is just control of territory. Right, so so that's what it comes down to is just agreed to control more territory, to control more of the market, and to tax people for coming through that kind of controlled area. Yeah, yeah. And then like kind of like along the border, it, you know, you get a lot of those like uh, the tunnels uh-huh. and everything like that. Yep. Now, how like I get it's probably easy. You have your networks out there, your um, your you know undercovers, your informants, stuff like that. But 
It, how hard are those to find? I mean, are those like difficult or do you need like to be at the right time, the right informant? Or? Um, probably the right informant. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a whole task force in San Diego that works mm-hmm. tunnels, but you know, Hey, they're going to, the drugs are going to come, come across the border through the path of least resistance, yeah. you know, wherever there's less risk. Um, pangas come up the coast, you know, boats, big mm-hmm. open boats, tunnels go underneath. We've seen ultralight aircraft come across, and we've seen people like body packing, walking across, you know, yeah. whether there's a, no wall or just coming through the port. So really, it's going to be whatever method um, carries a less risk with it. You know, it's a oh, business. Yeah. yeah. And then, so this is like, so I'm a DE agent. I start out like my first year. Mm-hmm. What What are some of the things I should say? What I could expect, like, like uh, work schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, hours like what does a DA agent go through on a daily basis so so our work schedule is and I don't know how you know I don't know how we get away with this there was a lawsuit years ago and mm-hmm. it was you know all these changes were made but really no changes were right. made. Right? <laughs> we, we work uh, basically a 10-hour work day five days a week so 50 hours a week yeah um, the the way I put it to people is you know when your day is gonna start and where it's gonna start so get your workout in prior to that because you don't really know when it's going to end. It's just um, a lot of the work we do is um, because it's so proactive, like something could happen and man, you're in a car for the next 24 hours. Right. You're going from LA to Arizona or up north in the state of California following Mm -hmm. somebody is, you know, surveillance heavy, um, responding to stuff that we intercept over wiretaps. Right. Um, Sometimes that's in the middle of the night, not so much, but sometimes that's in the, in the middle of the night, early in the morning, late at night. And, you know, if you know there's a load of meth in a house, you're going to be there until right. it's, you know, till it's hit or until mm-hmm. something happens with it. So, so the hours are, are a bit irregular yeah. and, uh, and long sometimes, but then you'll go through spells where they're not, right. you know, so, so it kind of hopefully evens out in the end. Right. When, so when you first started out, like, what were some of the, like, uh, kind of, you, have you had any close calls or like, what was some of like the most, like, rewarding, yeah. like, things that you've done, like... In your career, yeah. Well, you know, as far as close calls, we have a luxury at DEA that uniform law enforcement doesn't really have, right? And that is that we generally dictate when the interaction with uh, a suspect is going to come. Like we may know someone's involved in drug trafficking, we may have already collected the evidence, and it's like, okay, this Thursday we're going to arrest them. Here's what the risk factors are. Here's the team we're going to have out there to make sure that you know it's done safely, et cetera. So for the most part, uh, we have a big advantage. The, the thing that always, when, so people say, oh my God, DEA, that's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think the da- most dangerous job in law enforcement is being in a patrol car and doing a vehicle stop on someone that you know nothing about. Right, yeah. Because who knows what's about to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And there can be, uh, unfortunately, like an, you know, a bit of complacency there when you've done it thousands of times. We don't really experience that mm-hmm. that much. I mean, we do have situations where we don't know too much about someone or whatever, but for the most part, we're in control of uh, of the when, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that helps us. Um, man, I know a bunch of just fun cases, you know. Mm-hmm. One case, um, these guys had bought uh, Willie Nelson. So Willie Nelson had tax problems with the IRS right. years ago, right? So he had a tour bus, and it got sold at auction. And these drug traffickers, <laughs> these drug traffickers bought it, and they started running big loads of cocaine, a couple hundred kilos at a time 
from L.A. to New York in Willie Nelson's old tour bus. Oh. And it had a big mural on the side of uh, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and I think Chris Christopherson. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a big The Highwaymen, I think the hi- they yeah. were called. It was, yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when we finally... Uh, we finally ended the case and took him down and we did it kind of in the desert in California with the CHP. And the guy was, the CHP guy had like a strange look on his face. I was like, what's up? And he's like, man, I've seen this bus like 10 times come through here. Damn. But you know, like who would think to stop, yeah. you know. Willie Nelson's tour bus. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's kind of ironic that, that yeah. uh, but you know, it's, I think, hey, I, of course I've been doing it a while. And mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I'm a homer, but I think it's the most fun job yeah. that there is. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to leave till they, till they throw me out. Oh yeah, that's good. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. It's just that it's fun. And if you're happy, what's another thing I tell new agents that come in is there's a lot of freedom in our job, Mm -hmm. right? Although it's, although we're a single mission agency, there's a lot of different kind of niches you can do. Maybe it's undercover. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you like to run a network of informants. Maybe you like to write wiretaps and do that. Uh, Maybe you just like to kick doors in Mm -hmm. and, and be the tactical guy. Yeah. There's a place for everyone. But what I tell people is make sure that you're creating the situation to put yourself in position where you get to do that fun part of the job that you love. Um, The thing you can't do, the thing that will frustrate you a lot is if you're the tactical guy and you're like, when are we going to do a warrant? Mm-hmm. It's like you got to write one, buddy. You know, oh, yeah. if you write it, we'll serve it, and you can be number one man through the door. But uh-huh. someone has to do the work. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a lot of freedom, and it can be tremendous fun. Just it's up to you to to find that niche oh, that yeah. you love to do, and then put yourself there. And no one's going to mess with you if you're doing mm-hmm. that, man, because you're going to be productive. The reason why you're going to be productive is because it's fun. Oh yeah. And when I was new, I was probably about three years on the job, and like I would by choice work usually six days a week, and I would just take like a Sunday off, mm-hmm. you know. And there was another agent who was going to uh, Hawaii on vacation all the time. And I'm like, man, why is this dude going to Hawaii on vacation? Like what could be fun, you know, what could be more fun than what we're doing right, right here? Yeah. Right? Like that was the furthest thing. From, I don't want to go to lay on a beach. Like this is the fun stuff right here. Like, let me just do this. You know, this is what I dreamed of when I was a kid. I don't want to go away on vacation and not be able to do this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's uh, when you can find whatever it is in life, obviously, when you can find that thing. Oh, yeah. Man, it's it's golden. Especially like you're you're making a difference. You're doing something that you love. Yeah. I'm just like like being downrange and deployed. Those were the best times. Yeah. Like being back in garrison. It was okay, yeah. but even even like on tri- like training missions, it's like okay, cool, we're we're, we're doing something, yeah. you know. But oh, I just it, I hated sitting around, and and that's you know to me it was almost like a team sport. Like, oh yeah, it was like being on a team in a team yep. sport. You had your group of men and women that you're working with, and uh, you know you're sitting in a big open bay for the most part and bouncing ideas off mm-hmm. each other, and you know that's that's, oh, yeah. that's a lot of fun when when you can find that, you know. Yeah, when you go back saying like. For the uh, door kicker guy, yeah, well, get a like build a warrant. It's like same thing. It's like okay, build your target pack. Yeah, and it's just a, it's it's fun mm-hmm. because okay, I get to set out surveillance. I mm-hmm. get to watch people do their stuff. I talk to my informant. Yep. I'm taking pictures. I'm I'm mapping stuff out. I'm putting a plan together. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? That's that's, it. uh, that's that's fun. Like that's what I did. I want to do as a kid. That, that's exactly you know, like, what I did. like. That's like that's that's the way I looked at it when I got the job. I'm like man, this is what I played when I was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. this is what I did as a kid, you know? And now yeah. I'm getting paid for this? You know? Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to take vacation. Uh-huh. And I remember hit, I remember going on one mission, and there, I was a, I'm the PSYOP guy. So I was working with uh, 75th, 75th Ranger Regiment. I think I was with 1st Battalion at the time. 
And we, we go on this hit to this compound and I have a loudspeaker. So part of psychological operations, you know, you're, you're the voice of the commander, you mm-hmm. disseminate information, you, you change people's behaviors. Well, we were doing a call out and we hit this compound and uh, uh, the commander goes, George, sorry, or, or sorry, Bell, could take the interpreter, just go up here, tell them to come out. I'm like, okay, good. You know, got it all set up. Hey, Adam, tell them, you know, come out, hands up, this and that. And they do. And all of a sudden it's like, like it felt like 30 people, like 30 males came out. And I'm like a hundred yards away from them. Everyone's <laughs> behind me. But as soon as they came out, there was like 50 uh, red lasers on them. So I was like, okay, I'm covered. Right. You know? <laughs> right. So then I'm like, hey, come here, you know, this way, single file, give them all directions. And it was like the most, it was unreal because I was out there handling 30 dudes with an interpreter, walking them back to the behind yeah. the line and then going to the compound, searching it. And then we hit another uh, little mud compound and they're like, Hey, uh, Sergeant Bell, stay in here. Cause we had like an old man on the ground. He couldn't move. Uh-huh. He's like, stay in here. Just don't let him, you know, don't let him die. So I'm like, okay, I'm sitting in there and I start looking around. I'm like, Oh, there's a, there's two AK magazines here. Oh, there's a radio here. Oh, there's an AK in the corner uh-huh. here. So I'm like, I'm not trained on any of this stuff, you know, but I'm like, I can search a house. Right. It's, you know, it's too easy. And I, that was probably one of the best missions I ever, it was, it was amazing because I got to do more than my job. Yeah. I got to help out and I got to like contribute to the, to the overall mission and just, that's all I want to do. Yeah. You know, so I think you're telling your story. It's like, it's just, yeah. Gives me goosebumps. Yeah, no, I mean, that's why I feel like I've been so blessed, you know, for someone that I told you when I walked in the Academy and I was with, you know, an NFL player, a Navy SEAL. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not really supposed to be here. Right. You know? And to have it turned into the experience that it's turned into is I recommend it to everybody. Oh, yeah. And and you look you at know? the guys that you that you came in with and you work with. Uh-huh. All different backgrounds. All different backgrounds. All different colors. Yep. Yep. All different shapes, sizes, yep. whatever you say. And there's no there's no hate in there. No. We're on a team. I, you need to have my back because yep. I you could, you know... I got your back, you got my back. And I just don't understand how we make something so big when it's just not, to me, it's not a big deal. Yeah. I look at it. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. We yep. can get along. That's it. But it, it's these, it's the the division, yep. I call it. People want to divide everybody. Yep. And, you know, oh, no, my plan's the best plan. Right. This guy, yep. uh-uh. You look at him. He's, he's, he's a white guy. What does he know about anything? You <laughs> right. know, like just... Those type of things, it's yeah. like, you know, I just don't get it. Yeah. I don't get how I spent 20 years working with all walks of life, and I go out and I'm the racist. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. just, this is the way it is. I right. mean, you know, it's just, it's sad yep. what, what we're, you know, what we go through. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, so how do you guys deal with kind of that stuff when you're working and people are just like, you know, giving you looks and calling you names. And it's like, how do you like deal with that? You just, I mean, you ignore it, but we're, yeah. we're, we're a pretty, di- like you said, though, we're, we're a pretty diverse group Yeah, and you know, we know each other and yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, coming from a 53 year old white guy, right? I don't see systemic racism in law enforcement. That's just my experience. Yeah. I'm not trying to make it anyone else's, you know what I mean? Yep. But there are assholes out there. Oh yeah. You know, and we have them, I'm sure we have them and I'm sure that you met them in the army oh, and yeah. there was, you know, so that's something that we have to deal with. We have to make sure we make really good hiring decisions mm-hmm. and then really good, uh, who's going to train our people in the field to make sure that we're like catching those situations, addressing them and not kind of just pushing people along that 10 years from now, we're going to have a major 
incident with that we all regret. Like, man, we mm-hmm. should have done something about it. every. It's always everybody knew. Yeah. Oh yeah, I knew that guy. I knew something was going to happen with that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? So. And, and, and I've seen a lot of, in the news people talking about, well, the, the training's too short. You're not, training's too short. Training's too short. Your, your school's too short. But I look at it, you know, I, in the Army, our, our AIT for my, uh, a, uh, my MOS was 14 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I had enough knowledge mm-hmm. in 14 weeks at baseline mm-hmm. so that when I got to my unit, to my squad, I'm still going to get continuing training because mm-hmm. I'm with those guys with the experience. They're going to show me what yep. to do, show me what to say, show me where to look for the answer. So I look at it as like, I, I think we could do better training, but I don't think, I think extending it. Yeah. I think more, it's all about like on the job training, but, and if you have like the better, like a good, uh, squad leader or a sergeant or whatever, they're going to, they're going to show you the right way to how to police right. and do things. Yeah. So, so how we handle training. And like I said, we have the luxury of like a lot of times, you know, we know exactly who we're dealing with in advance. So we have like a special response team, kind of a mm-hmm. SWAT team, right? So that's in LA, we have uh, about 140 street agents, non-supervisory street agents. About 20% of them are on this special tactical team. And they'll train between 10 and 15% of the time, right? From month to month, Mm -hmm. one one month, 10%, the next month, 15%. But like you said, they're also operating for another 10 to 15% of the time, Mm -hmm. where it's like on the job, they're actually doing tactical entries. You know, they're actually putting handcuffs on people. would I like it to be more than that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would I like it to be less than that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? right? So, and the reason why is, like I said earlier, someone has to be creating the packages that are action, to how you put it, right? Someone has to be doing the investigations mm-hmm. that lead to these tactical operations. So, when unfortunately, when you're at training for a day, you're not doing that. But that's okay because we have to do that. But there, right. but there has to be a balance. You know, We can be super tactically proficient but never execute a warrant or we can be uh, safe and you know, and actually be productive at right. the same time. You know, it's it's a balancing act. So I kind of sometimes wish it was both ways. Now, in your position right now, uh, do you have to travel to those other um, uh, stations in uh, Hawaii, Guam, yeah. and all that stuff? Like, how often do you have to do that? And then, what are the kind of like? What's like the focus in Hawaii right now? Is it still is it all still prescription medication or is prescription it- medication and meth is meth. is a big thing out there? Yeah, and I think they're starting to see a lot of the counterfeit um, prescription drugs yeah. too. So like fentanyl made to look like oxycodone thirties, yeah. and even uh, methamphetamine now being pressed into like um, ADHD oh, fake yeah, ADHD yeah. drugs. You know, wow. um, so we, we I try to get out there. Twice a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's not much travel right now. I'm not really, yeah. you know, not really uh, going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Guam and Saipan. I mean, that's a trip. Oh yeah, I went to. Uh, I was in Guam. It was just a stop in during the war, like the GWAD, and stopped in that little island and there for maybe like three hours, and I was out. You uh-huh. know? So, yeah. But uh, no, 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 no. I was in Guam for overnight. Okay. And then it was another little island that I was at. What we did for like three hours, but. Yeah, Guam was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. nice. Oh, yeah. So that's a that's a hike, though, getting over there. Yeah, you're not kidding. Jeez. And then Guam, is it kind of the same? Guam is the same methamphetamine. You know, is it, it's, it's just easy thing. to make, right? I mean, that's the only reason. It's easy to it's easy to make. And, you know, from there, it'll go to, like, from Mexico to Asia mm-hmm. and back to there or from Mexico, oh, to, yeah. Mexico to U.S. and go in through Hawaii and there, yeah. And you see people, like, take meth. It's like, why? Ooh, man. Why? Like, what does it do? Like, what's the... Oh, it's just a super um, 
I don't know, the amount of like dopamine I think it is yeah. that it releases, it's just like a much more intense high than cocaine. And just to talk about how, um, how kind of prolific it's become on the streets of LA, mm -hmm. uh, one of the news stations in LA did a story where they were kind of tracking drug use among the homeless population. And there was a couple sitting on the sidewalk, um, smoking meth, and a guy walking by wearing like a polo shirt, jeans, you know, and he sees him and he's like, hey, can I get a hit? Smoking meth from, he has no idea who yeah. these people are, takes a hit from a meth pipe and keeps walking. It's like, man, that, like you expect to see that with cigarettes maybe, right. but like that's so crazy that yeah, it's become that. that um, it's like, like the darkest, like it's like a shadow that just like covers you oh, and yeah. just like takes the hold. Addiction and just is, not it's a vicious addiction. And here's, here's the conundrum, right? Um, Drug addiction is a disease. So I firmly believe you should not put someone in jail because they're a drug addict, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just that simple. The thing is, it's a very different kind of disease. Like you contrast it with like cancer. Mm -hmm. When someone gets a cancer diagnosis, like the first thing they're thinking about is how am I going to get better? Mm -hmm. um, what do I need to change? Do I need to get a second opinion? How soon can I start treatment? When someone's addicted to like meth, it's completely the opposite. They're running from treatment. They do not want oh, treatment, yeah. right? So what do you do? So it used to be a situation, which I don't know if it's the best situation um, or the best plan, is if you had a, a user amount of meth on you, it would be a felony in mm -hmm. California. And you'd go, you'd get arrested, and maybe you would choose not to go to jail you would go through like a drug diversion program and oh, get yeah, yeah. And I completely understand, like I said earlier, um, treatment's probably gonna fail the first time. Mm -hmm. it, it, it might, it might not. But at least it's something. Oh yeah. So least... now in California, those personal use amounts of drugs are decriminalized, right? So what happens? The dude basically gets a ticket. You know, if you have methamphetamine, personal use amount of methamphetamine or heroin uh, or fentanyl on you on the street, you know, you're going to be more or less told, hey, show up in court on this day. Mm -hmm. So there's no incentive to go to treatment. And I really think, um, you know, as a society, we have to figure out that solution. How do you get people that don't want to go to treatment into treatment to get them help? I don't have the answer to that. My answer is a simple one, which is through the criminal justice system, maybe we can force them to go into treatment instead of getting that felony conviction. Mm -hmm. And if they're an addict in the early stages, you know, they still have a, a family support and a job and everything, maybe that'll save them. Yeah. If someone has a better idea, let's do it. But, it, you know, people are not volunteering to go into these treatment things. And that's what the issue is. Yeah. It's, and that meth is so scary. I mean, I'm sitting in my office. I mean, I, we, I live in Prescott, Arizona. Small town, maybe forty thousand people. I think you you could I could walk the streets at night, mm -hmm. two in the morning. I can go in any neighborhood and walk the streets. Nothing would happen. Mm -hmm. But I'm sitting outside of my office and I'm looking out the window, and I see uh, two people. One of them has a stack of I, it's a it was looked like crystals, coke. It could have been something. It was like mm -hmm. 20, like about thirty feet away, mm -hmm. a stack out in the open, midday. Just hands it off to like the guy, hands it off to the runner lady, mm -hmm. and I see her every day walking back yep. and forth. Yep. I mean, it's there's no hiding it. Yeah, because down the road here are all the treatment facilities, the recovery places. Yeah. I drive by them every morning. Oh, Everyone's out there smoking that cigarettes, me nuts, man. walking it, around. It's so, yeah. but so here's the thing though: they're preying on 
Oh yeah. Yeah, that, that, that drives me nuts. And that's what I tell people like, hey, the drug traffickers are victimizing the addicts. Like Cause that, they're, cause they're weak. They're weak, man. That's the victimization that's going on. You know, yep. when people say, oh, it's not a drug trafficking's not a, uh, it's a victimless crime. You know, it's a victimless crime. I think you should just let it, it's like, no, it's not a victimless crime, no. man. People die and they get exploited and they lose their family yep. and they lose their job. And they, man, talk to the mother who lost two kids the same night, teenagers to an overdose, mm -hmm. you know, imagine that, imagine, you know, imagine what that's like and tell me that it's a victimless crime. It's exactly. not, you know, no, it's, it's not. not. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. It's just, it, it's a, like, like the, the, the drug trafficker is driving. He, he doesn't care about like what's going on. He doesn't care about that family in the, in the minivan no. that he's, you know, he has to get some more. If there's a high speed, like, Oh, all he cares about is getting that money and dropping those drugs off so he can get out. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So if he's if you think that he's not thinking about oh I better watch out this family's here I gotta yeah let, let, I'm gonna let them get by first you know man so that reminds me of a story so back in uh, 2000 maybe around 2005 mm -hmm. um, I was a supervisor like running a team a street team right and we were out and we were doing a heroin deal with a guy for a kilo of heroin and there was uh, you know we had been kind of doing surveillance and split up a little bit during mm -hmm. the day and trying to cover different aspects of this deal, yeah. right? And it ended up with four of us um, watching the guy who supposedly had the drugs. He was in a park with his kid who was about four, mm. right? There's four of us. Um, so we think, all right, well, there's four of us. We can, this, and he has his kid with him. Like, let's do the arrest of him right here. There's no one around. Yep. It's a park. Long story short, he gets to his car and we're trying to make the rest. He rams another car, takes off. It's a pursuit. He hits a cement truck, keeps going. With his kid in the car. With his kid in the car. And, you know, we lost him. We ended up getting him probably like four months later. Yeah. Just through persistence. We found him. But with his kid in the car. Yeah. No, you know, something that we thought like, hey, man, this is this will be very low key. Yeah, he'll put his hands up. He'll, you know. Mm -mm. Damn. Yeah. yeah people, desperate people, man. You know, so what's more important to him? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. The safety of his kid or, or, you know? So like, and that's a, like when you got like a street team, like you had like you four guys and that was like, kind of like, that was your squad every day, yeah. your team. Yep. So we, get, we had about a dozen, we had, oh, okay. had about okay. a dozen people and, uh, you know, everyone would have, um, their own investigations going, mm -hmm. um, some things we'd like, hey, today we're doing such and such. Here's where we're going to meet. All 12 of us are out there. Some days we're split up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just uh, kind of sharing everyone's work. And like yeah. I said, playing as a team. And my role at that time was just kind of making sure cases are going in the right direction and everything's safe. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's really about it. You know, the other thing is like trying to remove excuses for failure because you always have those people on a team or like where it's kind of like... Uh, Let's say an average performer, he has an excuse for why he's not doing something. Well, you know, the last boss said we couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can do it. Let's do it. <laughs> you know? And, that and was then, a pet peeve of mine. Oh, yeah. Like, well, the last guy said we couldn't do it. Well, yeah. come on, man. I'm in, we're here. So, no, let's do it. Okay, well, and then the next day it's like, okay, are you doing it? Well, yeah, but there's this other issue. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think we can do this. It's, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. So just keep... Sooner or later, the guy's got to look at himself and just be honest and say, I don't want to do anything. It's like, man, stop malingering. <laughs> right, right, right. But just, you know, try to remove excuses and make yeah. sure everything's safe and, you know. Yeah, because that's one of the like, things that, you know, I think every 
law enforcement or in, in, in military unit they come in con contact with. And we're doing real ops. It's always those restrictions mm -hmm. that are put on you. Mm -hmm. And I think like that guy's probably like, well, I think this is a restriction. Yeah. I can't do it. I mean, yeah. it, I, are you sure? Oh, I can now? Right. Okay, well, but then I checked into it. There's something that's like, come on, man. Oh, like, it's exact situation. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do, yeah. Like, yeah. ask for forgiveness? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or don't, what's, what's the saying? Better to, uh, I don't know, good, better to ask, better to um, beg forgiveness yeah. and ask permission, permission or something yeah, like so. that. Yeah. Wow. So like right now, are you, um, when you go back to work, uh -huh. is it kind of just right back into the grind and the flow or is there kind of like different, uh, different cases going on at the same time where you have to like, how many cases are, Man. do you oversee right now? Right now, I mean, it, I'm, not, I'm so far kind of removed from, unfortunately from, that's the funny thing is it's kind of um, the blessing and the curse with, it's probably similar to the military, right? Every single person that's in my position now was also like a brand new boot, new guy. Mm -hmm. And we all came up through the same yeah. system. Oh yeah. Right? So now I'm just more in like, um, a strategy oh, okay. position, yeah. like, hey, here's what I want the focus to be. Here's where I think we can get yep. the most impact. Kind of um, like at a uh, let's, like a joint staff or something. Yeah, like let's that. let's kind of push these types of cases mm -hmm. and um, and then just staying on top of yeah. what we want to see and making sure it's being delivered. Nice, you know, making sure we get the most impact that mm -hmm. we can for uh, for what we do. Uh, so, what is kind of like? So, I come in as a as a brand new guy, like, is there like a, is it like a GS mm -hmm. step position? Yeah, it's a GS position. Um, you, you come in either as a seven or a nine mm -hmm. with us, depending on your background um, and education. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it's like an advanced degree as a nine or a specific investigative experience, not necessarily just police work experience, but investigative experience would get you uh, a nine or possibly military time, mm -hmm. right? And then you're a year at that grade and you'll go up to, 12 and then two years as a 12 to 13. Okay. And then 13 is kind of our um, senior street special agent position. Uh, then from there, if you want to be a supervisor, you would test. It's a testing, mm -hmm. testing okay. process. Got it. And, uh, you know, that's one issue we're having now is somewhat, you know, I think people are uh, a lot more family oriented or maybe dual. Um, dual career mm -hmm. oriented than they were 25 years ago. Oh yeah. So with us, you become a supervisor and you're going to get a move, you know? So you, I became a supervisor in LA and three years, or actually five years later, it's a mandatory move back to our, I went to our special operations division in mm -hmm. Virginia where you're going to do a couple of years there on like a headquarters type assignment. Yeah. And then you can promote again or go back out in the field or whatever. Today, you know, less people are interested in doing that. You know, less people are interested in kind of signing up for that additional move. Maybe their spouse has a great career going or something like that. So that's a challenge. Yeah. You know, that's a challenge for us. But um, one thing that's great is the opportunities that our agents have overseas. You know, Europe, South America, Asia, um, mm -hmm. all over the world we have offices. And it's just fascinating work there. Oh, yeah. Fascinating work. You know? Yeah, I did. Uh, I was in Ukraine for six months. I didn't work at D, I didn't work with DA, but we worked with the uh, the FBI mm -hmm. liaison people mm -hmm. over there. They were. It was great. Like we had a great relationship. We're bouncing ideas off each yep. other. You know, we could joke. We could laugh because it's kind of because we're kind of like the same tribe a little bit. Yep. You know, we're they're fighting for the greater good and you know all that stuff. So everyone has kind of the same mindset. So 
it's always it's easier for me to talk to like someone that's in like law enforcement, military, uh, any kind of like a service thing because yeah. it's like you can relate to those people better and you can hold conversations better. But like it's with people that who haven't. I mean, I still can hold a conversation and everything, but it's just that same that connection that mm -hmm. that, that people who serve have. And I just it's one of those bonds that like it's like yeah, you're DEA, I was in the army, but. We know what it, we know. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, for sure. you know, you know, yeah. you know, so. And, and listen, a lot of the same, you know, not to say government issue, government challenges, mm -hmm. but the same things we run into oh, throughout yeah. the course of a career. You oh, know, yeah. Exactly same, the same stuff. Yeah. The bureaucracy, yeah. the, the backstabbing, the, yeah. the people talking and. Yeah. Oh, just nuts. If you had one word or one thing of advice to, you know, you, you're 29 years in, yep. if, if you could tell your. First day, mm. special agent Bodner. Yeah. What's one thing you would tell him? Wow. Man, what would I tell him? Um, just be persistent and have courage. That's yeah. it. And that's kind of what I tell all the new people, especially today with, what, with what's going on around the country, around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be your very first day and you might have to step into a situation where you have to have courage, mm -hmm. you know, courage to do the right thing I'm talking about. Not necessarily like a, um, you know, like a shooting situation, right. yeah, yeah, but yeah. just courage to speak up about something that's not going the way it should go, yep. where you see something's wrong. Um, even if you're the brand new person with one week on the job, that's the challenge with law enforcement, mm -hmm. right? Is, man, you could be one week on the job and you're going to make a decision that could be life-changing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So have the courage to always do the right thing and and um, and don't negotiate that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because I look at like, DEA, law enforcement, all you guys, it's like, I, honestly, I don't know how... It's, it has to be the biggest challenge I like to deal with, like what you guys deal with and see stuff every day, especially you see it in the States. Mm -hmm. Like for me, you know, in the army, you, you see stuff overseas, like you see dead bodies, mm -hmm. people getting killed and then you, but you come back to the States and it, it stays there mm -hmm. for, that's what I do. I, it's mm -hmm. it, everything that right. stays there. Right. But with like here, it's like, I, I just couldn't do it. And I don't, and I don't, and I understand why, how some law enforcement officers and stuff, I, I get how they are because they see mm -hmm. the most disgusting human beings there are it's yeah. like and the mental like you know you talk about you know uh for uh drug users you know the rehab there needs to be a more push i mean i, I don't know if, if they have a more robust like mental health thing like yeah. behavioral oh, health you know 100%. i mean it's just it's yeah yeah you, but you you expect these these officers to go into these into, into this no what expertise you yeah know, does an officer have to deal with that and and that's the thing about the homeless situation is um, in my opinion, it's not a housing situation or not housing problem in LA. It's a mental health and drug problem. Mm -hmm. It's mental health issues caused by drugs and drug issues caused by mental health. That's what the issue yeah. is. So somehow we have to deal with that. And like I said, until someone comes up with a better solution, and I'm sure there is one, I'm just not smart enough to think of yeah. it. I'm going to use the tools that I have and that we have to try to address this situation. And for all the people, instead of being critical at our attempt to use our tools, contribute. Exactly. Contribute, man. Yeah, no. I look at it as like in my little, my little brain, in my perfect world, I look at it as like, okay, we, like we want to help uh, drug, add, drug addicts, homeless uh, population. It's like, how many abandoned buildings do we have in this country? Right. How much stuff do we waste? Yep. 
like anything from cars to houses to materialistic things, yep. we just throw away. It's like, you know, we, we want to be involved in our community and I get it. It takes money. It takes time. It takes the right people. But if we just, like you said, like when I first I asked you, how do you do it mm-hmm. day by day, one That's bite it. at a time? Yeah. If we just get in these communities, okay, put some money into it or whatever you have to do, like have them take ownership of it, clean the place up. What, and just, you know, I don't know. My perfect world. Everybody move in and then you just get off the streets, yep. get, under, get, under, get under a roof and then be part of the community by cleaning it up. And just making it better. Yep. And the simplest thing, you know, that's the simplest way of looking at it. But in the end, why can't we just go back to sim- like the simple way of thinking and get <laughs> yeah. it done? Like yeah. everything's so complex yeah. about, well, we can't do this because we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to hurt these people's feelings. You know, that's it. And, we and, can't do this because the, they don't, ha- they didn't get their stimulus package or whatever to yeah. help. It's, hey, I, I learned a lot um, about the specific homeless situation you know, over the past, say, year in L.A., and a lot of it is, like what you're saying, is organizations filing lawsuits on behalf of homeless groups or whatever to stop certain things. And I'm like, man, I don't know. that. Like, that might have actually been something that helped, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I understand, you know, I understand that it's not the best solution, but it's something. Something's better than nothing. Oh, yeah. And, and where are we at? You know, ask, ask Dr. Drew Pinsky. Where mm-hmm. are we at? People are dying on the street. And... I don't see a lot of other things that are really having an impact right, right there. And, so. and you see all these things about, you know, you, all these organizations, we're donating money, we're, we're, we're doing this. It's like, but what are you doing with the mm-hmm. money? Like, you don't ever see in the news like, oh, we, we did this for the homeless population. We built this. We built that. Or, yeah. I, you just don't see it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's like, why aren't all these celebrities who are talking about, oh, we'll bail you out. Why don't you yeah. bail out these people on the streets or get open up a mental health facility and that's just get the, them in there? That you know? would be awesome. I mean, just, that would be awesome. But it's, it's, but that's not going to make the news. No. Just like with all these, like, you know, with the whole <laughs> the Epstein thing and then his little sidekick getting picked up and mm-hmm. then there was a, a federal or a judge that got killed. Wow. What, yeah. Like, what, like, what are your opinion on that? Like, what Ooh, do you think that's something? Like, do you think there's a... A pedophile ring. I mean, I, well, I don't know what. It's just so I, I, weird. Um, yeah. So the federal judge, uh, the federal judge was not killed, right? The, the husband, or or she was killed. Yeah. And she then was, the son, and the was, son was shot. Killed, son, son was killed, and, and, and the, the husband was shot and not killed. I think so. Yeah. I don't know what cases she's worked on. Yeah. I'd it heard, could be anything. Yeah. Right? I heard, one of my partners said uh, she had some involvement in a gang case, mm. in some gang case. Uh, but then I also heard there was a suicide in upstate New York of a lawyer that they somehow connected to that. But no, I don't know. That was just so the conspiracy theories are just I know, going yeah, so I know. crazy. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a crazy world right now. Yeah, for sure. But it, it's a crazy world. Uh, I think is because the media is bringing the crazy to light every single day, every single second, and it's nonstop. In no, your I, face, I think that's definitely know? true. You know, when I look, um, I don't think that there's more of any specific bad thing happening right mm-hmm. now. It's just my opinion. But I do think it's being shown a lot more because oh, yeah. it's, you know, the media business is about making money. Mm-hmm. And they do that by clicks and views. And, oh, yeah. You know, that's how, I mean, that's how, like, you know, any any influencer person that's like, hey, if I can get a click yep. or if I can do, get something to make myself yep. popular, and I'm going to do it. Yep. You know, we want the rating so we can get the I, I've read, I've read some headlines and the story is nothing like the headline. <laughs> no, <laughs> like this is not even what never. they said. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So what's what's next for you? 
What's the next step? question, man? I'll be, I'll be here. I'll be in LA until the end. And like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to ride it out and, um, until they throw me out. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, uh, still enjoying it. I still do it because I believe in it. And I think we make a difference, you know, yep. I really do. And, you know, I, I think back to, uh, you know, something you said earlier made me think of this story. When I was a supervisor, we went in a house once, we were arresting a woman and she had a daughter there that I think was nine years old. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, this isn't going to be good, you know, because the mom's getting taken. And the daughter was like asking questions. Are you taking my mom? What's going to happen? By the end of it, you know what? She was like hugging one of the agents saying, thank you, thank you, because I know my mom's going to get help. Oh. I get emotional thinking about it. Yeah, right? no, that breaks she, my she, heart. She's like, I, I, thank you for arresting my mom. And she wrote us a letter. Yeah. Like, thank you for arresting my mom. I know she's going to get help now, and she won't be sick like she used to be sick. It's like, that's what we do. And that's... You know, that's that's what we yeah. do. And the, the thing I try to point out to people is, um, you know, sometimes we... I feel like we get a little off track. I'm making the face of what we do a kingpin. Mm -hmm. Like El Chapo is... Oh, yeah, because it's sexy. But, man, the face of what we do is drug-addicted babies. You know, we, we, we try to stop that at DEA. Mm -hmm. 70,000 people that die of an overdose, we try to stop that. Hell, yeah. Um, there was a case in L.A. where um, Jamel Moore and uh, Timothy Dean died of drug overdoses and it was super sketchy circumstances like a dude had had them come over to a house for sex and either he was injecting them or he was providing the mm -hmm. drugs they couldn't get a murder charge filed but DEA can step in in that case and it's like a 20 year charge on the guy oh, nice. you know where we can provide justice for uh for people in the community that lost loved ones to mm -hmm. to drug sales that's more the way I look at what we do, yeah, yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, the, the sack of New York, my counterpart in New York, Ray Donovan, he says it best. He's like, we, we save lives. Yep. That's what we do. In simplest terms, we save lives one at a time, um, every day working to save a life. Yep. And that's what we, that's really what we try to do. You know, we understand the damage that drugs cause, um, and the violence that goes along with them on the streets. And, you know, we, we try to put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like what I think you were saying earlier is like when there's a vacuum, you know, mm -hmm. um, to the people that think it doesn't have an impact. Trust me, it has an impact. It, you know, if we weren't there, the situation would be a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Especially like in worse. a community. It's like the same thing in a community, like in the United States, you shut down a playground or shut down a community center or, you know, something. Mm -hmm. Where is everybody going to go? Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to go to the community center no more. Yep. And guess who's going to take advantage of that or those street level drug dealers that need those runners or wh whatever job they need, yep. they're going to get recruited because they have nothing else to do. Yep. So yep. it's, it's weird to think like when I was growing up, when I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old and you know, we, you had in the community, you had the little league, little league mm -hmm. stuff. You had the flag football, you had mm -hmm. the track and field. And I just don't, I mean, it's probably out there within the YMCA seeing it, but I just, I miss those big little league, uh, events, you know, all the families are there in the field yep, yep. and it's just a great time. It's yep. like, and I don't see a lot of that. I mean, obviously with Corona, but even years yeah. ago, I don't, I just don't see it yeah. anymore. So just like, like just bring those back. Yeah. You know? That'd be just great for yep. the community. So, yep. so what is, uh, so after everything's all said and done, you've done your, you, you, you took your last step in your, in your DEA shoes. What is your plan for retirement? Like, what do you, do you have a it's, hobby? Or it's anything? fearful, man. Yeah. Right? No, I, 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 
I have a jujitsu is my hobby. Nice. So you know, I've been training that a bunch. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to be able to do nothing. Mm -hmm. As much as I think we all have this like, you know, idealistic thing. Like, man, I'm going to lay on the beach for two hours a day. Then I'm going to yeah. go to the gym and I'm going to do this. It's just not. Gonna man, happen. if I go away for like three days, um. Oh I, yeah, you know my phone's not ringing or something, <laughs> and I feel like you know I just feel lost. So yeah, yeah. it's just being in such a um, fast moving and kind of energetic career for so yep. long, man. It does. It does. I'm a little wondering what's going to happen on the mm -hmm. other side, you know. But but I'll be doing something. Oh I, yeah. I just you know I don't know exactly what it is. Um, I'll be doing something, and hopefully something along the same lines where it has like a positive impact on oh, somebody. Yeah. You know? Definitely, especially yeah. with all. Like, your experience and who you know, your networks. It, it, why wouldn't you share yeah. your your knowledge and yeah. wealth there? But I mean, that's kind of like what we do here. It's like, right. yeah, we're all ex-military, but you know, it, I, it look at it. We still have like a, I mean, a romantic way. We still have a service to this country mm -hmm. and to people, like the citizens. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what we look at community. It's like, right. why wouldn't we want to share what we learn, like education-wise, like simple basic facts of like our uh, tasks, like land navigation. Yep. Survival, like those things that, that that could really help somebody out in a situation. Even if you're from like the inner city, but you come and learn some survival skills, right. that's going to change your mind, like your whole <laughs> mindset when yeah. you need to do something. So yeah, yeah, it's like I think you know, as long as you're still involved in something, why not? You know? and, that, and that's funny because I would probably be more comfortable in urban survival than than survival out here right. somewhere. You yeah. know, it's just you yeah, know, exactly where yeah. I'm, you know, where I'm more at home or more at ease. Yeah. In that environment, you know. So you spent most of your career in LA. Yeah. Do you have any plans of moving back to the East? Do you miss the East Coast a lot? Um, or how do you? No, look? I don't really. Yeah. I don't really. You know, my wife is uh, is an LA person. Mm -hmm. um, has a business out there, so oh, nice. so so I'm not going anywhere. You cool. know. Although although lately we have been talking about it, you know, just because times are changing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and and. and California is maybe not the place for us long term. I don't know, but we'll we'll, we'll probably stick it out and yeah. stay there. Uh, just another question: Like when they started uh, the legalization of marijuana mm -hmm. in California and Colorado, how did that kind of impact the DEA and how you guys operate now? And 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 is it because I remember watching some shows like that. I don't know whoever it was. They'd come in and they would just shut down these um, dispensaries. Dispensaries, right. obviously, because I mean, yeah. either they broke a rule, whatever it was. I mean, there had to be a reason. But how does the DEA and that uh, legalization of marijuana? How mm -hmm. do you guys navigate that world? So, so honestly, it is a little frustrating, right? Because yeah. it's it's illegal federally, mm -hmm. but we've kind of uh, we, we kind of got a good plan of how we handle it. Um, it's been an experiment in California, mm -hmm. and I don't think it's worked out that good. Like I look at it now, and um, eighty percent of the marijuana market is black market in mm. California today. That's incredible, right? That's, so, that, so that's oh yeah, wow. So and that's that's according to the state, right? This the state bureau of cannabis control is saying that. I think it may even be a little more than that. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is the overall market is bigger than it ever was. The black market is probably bigger than it ever was, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They're not getting the tax money they thought they were going to get. Um, there's some flaws to, so, so, so basically to answer your question, the, what we'll do now is, um, like last Friday we were out and we did a marijuana operation, um, part of our dom domestic cannabis eradication program. And we did it with local law enforcement. We're focusing on, uh, public lands, mm -hmm. grows on public lands oh, yeah. because the chemicals that are used are super toxic. Yep. Um, they're just dumped. 
you know, the, the way they use water doesn't meet regulations. It's just, just, it's just a mess. There's mm -hmm. guns there. Uh, the Mexican cartels, to some extent, have come up into the United States because we've reduced regulation, mm -hmm. right? The state of California oh, yeah. reduced regulation. So that invites the black market in. So now a lot of the grows that might have been in Mexico in the past are now in California. Um, it's not a, not a good situation. The tax money hasn't been there, right? Because mm -hmm. there's so much black market. So the state has like, let's say 25 to $30 million available uh, for grants to give local cities to address the black market. The problem is what I think they got wrong is they don't allow cities to tap into that money unless they have legalized marijuana in their city. So the example I give is like the city of Compton, right? The city of Compton voted and the citizens voted against legalizing marijuana. No dispensaries, no growing. Because of that, they're denied getting state funds to address the black market. Like mm. to me, that doesn't make sense because the black market is flocking to Compton. There's a huge marijuana black market mm -hmm. and they can't get state funding to address it. So that hurts the industry overall, right? right? Um, that's one thing I think they definitely got wrong. The second thing is if a city does uh, not permit marijuana, like they call it adult use or medical mm -hmm. marijuana, other cities that do permit it, they can have delivery service going into that city. Oh, yeah. Yep. That, that doesn't make sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. If your city's saying no, um, it just doesn't make sense that that would be allowed. So the, the calls I get now are crazy, right? Three types of calls. I'll get calls from, um, unfortunately, from police chiefs, and they'll be like, hey, we, you know, they want us to address the black market. Like there's a whole new component to what we have to do and we don't have any additional funding to do it. Can mm -hmm. you help us with it? And it's tough for me because if that particular city legalized marijuana, my question to them is like, what was the plan? You know, what was your plan to address the black market when you legalized it? Mm -hmm. And this was a state law. You know, why are you now requesting the federal government to come in and basically do regulation? We don't do regulation on marijuana. Mm -hmm. If we come in, it's like everything's going, Yeah, you know, so find a way to make it work. Um, we'll also get calls from city managers, that same type of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, can you help us out? Because we don't really have a handle on this. And again, it's like, what was the plan? You know, what yeah. plan did you have? And also from all those people that were so against uh, anyone going to jail for marijuana, they were so against any kind of enforcement with marijuana. Now they're legal, but because they're getting hit with the black market, they're calling us up to get rid of the competition, <laughs> right? Hey, we're legal now, so take them to jail. Yeah, You know, that's almost the, the, the ironic part of it. So we're out there we'll we'll do marijuana cases when yeah. it's uh, when it's part of like an organized crime network or, gro okay, or grows yeah. on public land or something where it's going to impact the health uh, health and safety of the community we'll, we'll do it but it, it is frustrating that there's a little bit of a a little bit of a disconnect yeah. you know, between federal and state law that's that has to be frustrating yep oh wow so damn well sir i think we've said it all yeah and uh i appreciate you coming on and i appreciate the invitation thank you so much yeah, for letting absolutely. me interview you and all this stuff i learned a lot this yep. is awesome so but yeah, thank you for coming on. And All right. Uh, we'll see you see you on the Take on care. another day. Yep. <laughs> Take care. Thanks.